At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Chasing Tales Outdoor Podcast. I am your host, Walt, and I am joined by my turkey-slaying brother from across the state, Chase. What's good in your in your uh, neck of the woods, my friend? Woo, man. Not a whole lot, dude. Just uh, counting down the days to turkey season. Um, just purchased a little 410 for the kids. Yeah. So hoping to get out there a little bit early this year. Uh, expectations aren't super high, but I, I still think it'll be a, a great time. So, what have you been up to, dude? I am I, I I'm improving every day, uh, even if, if even marginally with my turkey calling. Um, I've got my my setup all rigged up. I think I've honed it down to about three or four calls that I can I can make some cust you know some repeatable calls uh, confidently. Uh, even with my gloves on, dude, I, 17 days away, 18, 17 days away, something like that from uh, 17 days away from turkey season. And I just got drawn for a, a special tag. Uh, the unit's name is, um, so I hope you guys uh, caught that. Um, <laughs> if not, oh, well, I was trying to help you out. I had a spare tag, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but I did. I got, I got a special opportunity to draw in an area that I've got to say looks really turkey. We went there to uh, uh, launch boats to go fishing, and when the whole time we were driving through, I was like, man, this is some quintessential Florida swamp. It, 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 I just I cannot wait this Sunday. Hopefully, I can break away, get over there, and uh, do some some scouting. But man, season's getting close, dude. I hope you're ready. Yeah, I'm, I was I was born ready. <laughs> yeah, you of all people have been for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well, dude, you know I've come to the conclusion on something, and that is there is one word that seems to describe the turkey hunting community. And that's gracious, courteous, kind, pleasant. That's the definition of gracious. And tonight's guest exemplifies that greatly. We got to talk with Shane Simpson. The vast majority of this episode was on uh, turkey calling itself. We get into some strategy as well, but you can just tell this dude's a wealth of information and just continues to build on this dialogue that we're having on turkey calling. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, the dude definitely loves turkey hunting, and that comes through in this podcast. And he even gives a, a few tips on how you can uh, travel out of state to uh, chase that passion. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and the dude, he uh, 
he, he gives you some unconventional tips as well that I'm not going to ruin, and there's some some listener questions there at the end. But we're going to keep this short because that episode went on for 100 and – not 100, good Lord – an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, well, I guess that is over 100 minutes. But uh, anyways – uh, we got to thank the people that make this show possible. First and foremost, that is Tethered. You know, they just dropped the Phantom Saddle. People are posting all over Facebook that they've got theirs. There are YouTube reviews dropping everywhere. Hot takes. Get online. TetheredNation.com and order one today. Yeah, we got to give a big shout out to the patrons of our podcast. Uh, they help make this show possible. If you're unfamiliar with Patreon, it's a place where you can go and make a small donation to help out uh, the production of this show. We do quarterly giveaways for our patrons, and this quarter we're giving away a Trophy Ridge React 5 bow sight. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron, uh, visit uh, patreon.com, Chasing Tales Outdoors. That's it. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All right, folks. I, we are back, and we have got a guest that has got a ridiculous amount of turkey experience. We are keeping the trend going on turkeys, and I am proud to announce that Shane Simpson has carved time right before the season uh, kicks off for him to talk with us about turkeys. Shane, is it, is it warm up where you're at? Actually, it, it is pretty warm by Minnesota standards. Um, <laughs> it's in the I think it's in the 40s right now, and the snow's starting to melt. So, I mean, we've, we've been enjoying a, a little warm spell here, which probably means... You guys are in the 70s or 80s down there whenever it gets that warm up here. But, yeah, it's... Um, Getting close. Yeah, it's supposed to hit like 60 or 65 this weekend, which is going to be crazy warm. I mean, you're going to see people out in shorts and Speedos and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not that's not awesome. me, of that's course. A... <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it'd be a, it'd be a mossy oak uh, tree bark. A speedo if it was one right well i'm i'll be dri- i'll be driving south uh this weekend so I'm, i won't get to enjoy the warmth up here i imagine it'll be warmer down south where i'm going though but so that's the way it always yeah, goes. you might be surprised yeah yeah it was it was 84 oh. degrees here today where i'm at in florida yep i'm looking forward to those kind of temperatures i love i love warmth well uh, why'd you leave it you know I, i'm pretty sure you're from the state of south carolina how'd you how'd you wind up uh up north the uh the arctic uh, you know, you know, you meet a woman online, and next thing you know, you <laughs> you're packing up and moving out out of state. <laughs> it certainly it certainly wasn't the turkey hunting up here because I well now that I know how good Wisconsin is, it it certainly is a, a something to keep me here. But um, it wasn't the the hunting in Minnesota was certainly wasn't the draw to begin with because back when I first moved here, you could only hunt five days and get one bird and i'm like no that ain't cutting it holy cow there's a five day season is that what you're saying well they had a like a month month and a half long season but it was all they split into one week or five days it was all it was kind of messed up it was like this first season season a was five days and then season b is five days season c seven days season you know it was like that and you had to apply for one of those wow. seasons, and so they did it to kind of spread out the hunting pressure. Like you know, you know, part of the population will be hunting season A, and then they're done, and then the you know next on so, so on and so forth. That's the reason calling all turkeys was born, because when I when I moved up here and I could only hunt for five days, if I was lucky enough to draw a tag, um, I started. You know, number one, looking for people to let me tag along with them and film their hunts. You know, that was the kind of the reason to go along with them. I wasn't just going to go sit in the woods with them, <laughs> you know, perfect strangers. <laughs> but I'd meet them on hunting forums or on online or whatever, and 
and start a family with the hunts and and then and then kind of going to my neighboring states like South Dakota and, and Wisconsin and hunting there and you know I was putting the videos on DVDs for the people I hunted with and then I decided to put it on YouTube um, so it was easier to share the videos with them and then then people started subscribing to my channel and then I had to kind of polish the episodes the next thing you know here I am you know um, 10 years later 11 years later or 12 I can't even keep count but calling all turkeys is that's that's where it got born so what is what is calling all turkeys go ahead and throw a shameless plug in there for everybody oh okay <laughs> um <laughs> they should read the description of the podcast before they listen uh, anyway uh <laughs> <laughs> calling all turkeys is my uh, it used to be my primary youtube show um and I have a website called Calling All Turkeys, and it has tip videos and tutorials and vocalizations of wild turkeys and wild animals such as barred owls and pileated woodpeckers, and I think there's a couple of clips of coyote howling. You know, everything associated with turkey hunting, is for, and, and then tutorials for calling and stuff. Um, but my, my content has grown over the years, so I'm doing some public land deer hunting kind of stuff. Um, and then I'm doing my deer tracking with my coon hound that you may hear bark throughout this show. Um, and so that's been very popular, uh, the Cali Chronicle. So I have playlists now. That I guess they wouldn't be the, my whole show is just Call on Turkeys. There's playlists, the Call on Turkeys, Public Land Whitetails, and the Cali Chronicles. And you can find that on YouTube. Your hands are full. Yep, yep. I'm, I'm working on videos year-round just about. I had a little lull here in the winter, and it's driving me crazy to get back out there and start you know, hunting, and I love turkey hunting, so that's that's what I'm after. Is it your favorite form of hunting? Oh yeah, yeah. Just the well, number one, the weather's the weather's nicer. You know, I like right. I like I like archery hunting for deer, especially like on public land and stuff, because there's so much of it, and it's like it's like owning, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of acres, and and you get to explore it all the time. But in the back of my mind about deer hunting, I know because I live in Minnesota that the winters are getting ready to be, you know, I'm, I'll keep it clean. They're getting ready to be crappy up here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it kind of makes me dread fall deer season, even though I'm enjoying it. Cause then, you know, November rolls, November rolls around, we get snow and cold and, and it doesn't warm up until about right now, March. So we get about five or six months of snow on the ground before we ever see the ground again. And wow. so turkey, wow. turkey season's nice and warm. Birds are singing, you know, Plus, turkey hunting is extremely fun. You know that interaction with the birds, and and you know it's 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 just something that that I really like to do. If you've done turkey hunting, you you should you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I I can't say I enjoy the warm weather down here, uh, given that we we have two seasons, spring and summer. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of would like some seasons mixed in, but yeah. <laughs> you come up here and stay with me one winter, and then you'll be begging for 90s and 95 degrees <laughs> yeah i know chase agrees with you on that he's a he's a warm water dude uh, or warm warm air dude yeah warm weather person for sure i am not a fan of the cold <laughs> you just just look at all the retirees that moved to florida and where they come from and there's a reason for that <laughs> yep yeah, okay well that's fair yeah snowbirds all ohio minnesota i'm i'm kind of curious how did you get your, your start in the turkey hunting? Alrighty. Uh, so let's back up many, many years. I was about, um, 
I guess I was about 12 or something like that when my dad finally trusted me with a, uh, to, to go out in the woods on my own with a gun, 11 or 12. And, you know, we'd, I got a twin brother, and, and he and I would go out in the woods, and we would share a gun. The first, you know, the first few times we'd go hunting, I would, I would carry it with a little single-shot 12-gauge, and he would go with me, and then the next hunt, he would carry it, and I would. My dad finally bought us a shotgun for Christmas, and, and I think it was, we had like 50 acres of, of land, and we had some public land that butted up to it turkey season come in you know you're you're young and wanting to get out there and hunt anything so i mean we didn't have a desire for turkey hunting per se over anything else it was just the season coming in so we went out there to try it and just basically walking around on the public land we you know we did our property but then we went on to the public and came across a fellow that was hunting back there and he you know he was talking to us asking you know i don't know how the conversation went exactly it's been so many years ago but basically um, he was giving us some pointers on how to turkey hunt, you know, sit beside a tree, you know, call, do all this other stuff. We were just walking around hoping to jump one or something. We didn't know anything about it. And uh, <laughs> in talking with him, he had, a, I can't remember, he had a little backpack or a little pack or something. He had calls in this pack, and they were still in the, in the packaging, brand new. And uh, he, he gave us each a mouth call. He said, learn to use this and, you know, and sit down beside a tree and, I'll, you know, and, and that's kind of where I got my start, you know, I, I got that mouth call. So then I started reading magazines and whatever I could get my hands on to learn more about turkey hunting. And I, it, I think it might have been like a week later or so, I called in my first turkey. And, um, and that's where I kind of got hooked. I didn't, I didn't get him, <laughs> but it was so exciting. <laughs> it was so exciting that it hooked me. And um, it was, I think it was the following year I killed my first gobbler and I killed two within two days. And so, uh, yeah, it was. That's that's where it got started. Chase, what, what, how, how does that compare to you, man? In your start? Well, like I mentioned before, I didn't get started hunting until I was an adult. So probably it's probably been about thirteen or fourteen years ago is when I started hunting. My uh, father-in-law is a big hunter, deer hunter, turkey hunter. Uh, he kind of got me into the outdoors and hunting and. He basically took me out but one day kind of before the season started and was kind of gave me a couple little tips and tricks and he had somewhere he was going the opening day of that turkey season and I was kind of out of my own so I, I did a lot like you said a lot of research and trying to figure things out and looking up uh, what types of calls I need to use do I need to use decoys and all those types of things so uh, it was a little bit different journey but um, I still was able to develop a, a love for uh, turkey hunting, being out there on my own and trying to figure everything out. It, it certainly is fun, though. I think yeah, I no think doubt. that's that's probably the most enjoyable part of any hunting is that initial year or or five years, that first five years learning it all, because everything is so you know, it's like a it's like a kid at Christmas. You're learning all these new things or getting these new. You know, I, I'm not sure I'm describing it well, but it certainly doesn't get any uh, less exciting the more you get into it, though. That's for sure. It, that, at least that's been the experience for me for turkey hunting. I, just, I seem to get the bug harder and harder each year. And to, to <laughs> like I mentioned before you started the show, it's, a, it's dangerously addicting. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. You know, I, I wanted to pick your brain on something because I, I was trying to figure out why... The, the turkey hunting community is so different from all the others, and it is. It's, it's its own 
don't shoot me for saying this, but it's kind of like its own little cult. It's its own little community. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and there's a there's not a whole lot, oftentimes, of crossover between your 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 big buck killers and your big turkey killers, and and there seems to always be this constant what you just said this constant um it gets more addictive every year do you think that's because there's a there's a degree in which a turkey just doesn't get bigger than x and as a result it just constantly is uh the the hunt centers around the challenge of getting on a turkey itself versus deer hunting can you know every year you're pursuing you know a a 160 or a 170 or a 180 and every year it it kind of morphs into something it's not that is a great possibility that that's that I mean that's very possible that that's what's happening I know I'm extremely grateful that turkey hunting is the way it is that a sure you have a juveniles and you have uh, adults and that's basically it <laughs> you know you can have a four-year-old <laughs> bird but a long beard full fan walks out in front of you that is your 180 buck you know doesn't matter what right. he, what else or how old he, he's lived <clears throat> now with deer hunting for me I'd um, I haven't gotten to that um, that big buck class of hunting. I, I enjoy hunting on public land. I'll shoot a smaller buck just like I'll shoot a bigger buck. Um, but that's just me. But I think the the aspect of turkey hunting because you know the way they have you know their second year they they all have you know a ten inch beard or nine inch beard and you know that keeps it fun for everyone and it, it hasn't turned into this big battle of who's killed the biggest gobbler you know there's some mm-hmm. people there's some people that try to do that but because of the way turkey hunting is it's kept it kind of low-key well and also i think uh you can kill you can kill a okay well i'll ask you if this is the case i won't speculate because i'm not i haven't been in it enough but there doesn't seem to be any shortage of 10 inch long beards in florida or or missouri whereas uh, Chase has to work really hard to shoot a big buck here in this state, and some people can just trip off the front porch and kill one in Iowa. So I oh, think yeah. maybe that plays into it some, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think everyone has big bucks, and I'm using uh, air quotes to describe turkeys. Big bucks in every state or every location. Right. Um, uh, like it's yeah, like you said, it's much easier if I had a, a non-resident license to go to Iowa. To kill a, a good buck and, and like north dakota i went this past fall that was uh, probably my best buck i wouldn't say it was my best i shot a, a nice buck many many years ago but i went out there and me and garrett prawl diy sportsman if you know who i'm talking about he and i killed good dude he and i killed two good bucks you know one day apart and so a lot of that has to you know go on where you where you were at and where you're hunting the hunting pressure and all this other stuff whereas turkey like you said, it's everywhere. I mean, you can kill a 10-inch beard, 1-inch spur gobbler. I think that's what really excites me about turkey hunting more than anything. And also, it's a really active form of hunting. You know, there's an interaction with an animal that you get with turkey hunting. I think I felt a touch of it when it comes to duck hunting. With duck hunting, you're doing some talking to the birds. Now, the birds don't do a whole lot of talking to you, but you can see them react with their wings and the way that they fly and you, you can tell you're having a, a more intimate reaction there than you are sitting in a deer stand, which is my primary passion as it stands today. But, man, I, I think the idea of being able to interact with nature and still be a hunter is just what utterly fascinates me about this process. Yeah, and, and with turkeys, you can be mobile. You know, like with duck, you're basically stuck in one, one pond or one right. spot or whatever. And with turkeys, you can be mobile. And the difference between turkeys and deer is, you know, deer can be nocturnal. 
and you can be out in the woods hunting and, and, and the deer just bedded down somewhere or hold up somewhere in, in the nastiest location. You can't get them to move on your own. Turkeys aren't nocturnal. They have to be out there during the day. So, you know, the, you know you're out there hunting. You know that turkeys are around. They got to feed during the day. They're going to be moving around. They're not going to be bedded up somewhere or on lockdown. <laughs> So that right, right. So that yeah. makes it that aspect makes it a little a little better also. Yeah. Well, and a turkey can't smell evidently, so uh, that that increases my likelihood given how hot it's going to be outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> so if I ever go hunting with you, hunt upwind. Always, <laughs> always, man. <laughs> I sweat like a pig, man, and down here it's not hard to work up a sweat. <laughs> Oh, what, what, what did you did you have something to say, Chase? No, no, and I was just saying, and turkeys gobble. I mean, they kind of let you know yeah. where they're at <laughs> for the most part. Sure. So they'll, they'll gobble on the roost, and then when they get on the ground, so uh, it's yeah, it's just fun. It's just fun listening to them gobble. I mean, I enjoy getting out there and listening to them gobble on the roost, and then when they get on the ground, then when they get super close, which you can't uh, see them, and then one of them fires off, yeah. and it about <laughs> blows your hat off your head. I mean. I can't really explain any other type of uh, hunting situation where you, you get into that. I hadn't been elk hunting yet, so I've heard that elk hunting is kind of turkey hunting on steroids, but um, that that's as close as I've been to something like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'd, I've, I've been uh, talking with buddies about the possibility of elk hunting at one point, uh, sometime in my life, but I don't know if I can just either, ever bring myself to do it, you know, because they say, well, if you love turkey hunting, you'd love elk hunting. I'm like... Yeah, but I don't really love toting out 1,200 pounds of meat three miles. <laughs> <laughs> That's where buddies come into play. You always go elk hunting with friends. Yeah, yeah. I'd just, yeah. just rather go on 10 different turkey hunts and tote out 20 pounds 10 different times. <laughs> yeah. As you got into turkey hunting, you obviously have made a heck of a name for yourself as a turkey caller. Obviously, your website's you know loaded with information. Um, I kind of want to spend a, a good portion, uh, Chase, unless you have a, a different direction you want to take this first, but I kind of want to spend a, a good portion on turkey calling because I think it might be maybe the most... Uh, it might be both the easiest and the hardest thing to improve on in the off-season. What I mean by that is... I think I sound like a turkey until I hear someone else sound like a turkey, and then I realize I've still got some room to improve. But I also understand there's a purpose to how you interact with birds. So I don't know how you want to to break apart how to uh, to talk to a turkey or how you approach talking to a turkey. But I'd love to hear your your opinions on how that evolved for you. Well, um, I was, you know, pretty much like everyone else. Um, to hear my buddies say it, I was. A, I was a good caller, but you know, I, I go back and watch some of the footage from me years ago, and I wasn't a good caller. Um, I I think I called just as well as anybody else out there. You know, the, the most of the population of uh, hunters, turkey hunters. It wasn't until 2009 that I entered my first calling contest, and and I placed third in it, which told me maybe I am a little bit better than the average caller. But that right there is what kind of and I, and I encourage anyone that wants to be a better caller to start competition calling. And, and not necessarily to, to win any prize or anything, but when, you have to, when you're in a competition, you have to train. And it forced me to train. It forced me to listen to actual wild turkey audio. 
listen to all the inflection they put in their calling, learn to basically, you know, learn how to operate a turkey call, like a mouth call, and, and, and hold the call properly if I'm running a pot call or a box call. All these things it forces me to do. You know, the average hunter out there, they pick up their call a couple weeks before the season. I used to do that. And you, you ride down the road and people say, oh, just practice in your truck as many times as you can, you know, as many hours as you can or at home when the wife's not there or whatnot. But what usually happens is most people are just practicing bad calling. They're becoming perfect at calling bad, you know, or poorly. But if you get into competition calling, and that's what I did. I entered a contest. I placed third. That I'm kind of glad I placed third because that got me excited for the next contest. I looked for it. I went to it. And competing over the years has progressively improved my calling and as a result of me preparing for each contest and practicing year-round. At what point should someone consider going into a contest? Because I'm I'm a fairly bold person. Um, I've done some pretty, pretty out there things, but the idea of getting amongst a, a group of my peers and trying to sound like a turkey frightens the hell out oh, of me, to be frank. It's very frightening. <laughs> I still get <laughs> <laughs> well, not to discourage anybody. No, no, it's not frightening at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty nervous, uh, nerve wracking to get up on that stage and 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 you know control your nerves and and put out some sounds and you know I don't know. You just got to get over that. I was that was one of the the toughest things for me to get over, and that's why I didn't start competing until two thousand nine. I I actually wanted to compete many many years before that but i was too shy and bashful and and afraid to get on that stage and i'm gonna tell you this when i saw the billboard in 2009 for that calling contest or maybe it was late 2008 it was early 2009 that's right for that calling contest and i made the mental commitment that i was going to go there and compete i had butterflies in my stomachs for two straight weeks before that contest because <laughs> I, I knew <laughs> mentally that i was going to go up there i wasn't going back and out and because of that, I was so nervous to get up there. But it wasn't that bad. There, you know, calling contest doesn't draw a huge crowd unless you go to Grand Nationals, and then, then that's where the huge crowd is at. But these local contests, contest, you may have anywhere from 10 to 20 people watching if you're lucky. Most of them are the other callers and maybe their spouse or their kids or something. So once you go to a few of them and you get you know, to be friends with these other callers and their wives and kids and stuff, then it's like one big family reunion every contest, especially like up here. I go to, you know, when I go to a Minnesota contest or a Wisconsin or Iowa contest, like I'm going this weekend, I'll know almost every caller there and, you know, often know their spouses and, you know, kids and whatnot. So, I mean, it's uh, it's not nearly as nerve-wracking for me to get on that stage then, but... I, th I think if you really want to be a good caller, you're just going to have to deal with the nerves of getting on that stage and enter calling contests. Are there, are there different, I mean, for instance, you don't have to just do diaphragms. If there's a, I'm, I'm assuming like a pot call uh, yeah. pool as well, right? Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to start out something easy or simple uh, to get get your feet wet, I guess, in competition calling, you don't even have to do the, the turkey calling aspect. There's other divisions. There's owl hooting division. There's goblin division. You know, for the younger people, there's uh, the youth divisions like Pults and Jakes. Um, if you don't run a mouth call, there's a friction division. There's an amateur division. Uh, and then there's the senior open or open division. That's where the usually the top callers compete in. And you can use anything in that, pot calls or mouth calls or whatever. Um, so if you just want to get your feet wet, like, 
you know, say you, you can run an owl hooter pretty good or you can do it with your natural voice real good and go to a contest, you get up there and you do a little bit of owl hooting and you're done, you know? And then, you know, that, that'll get you some stage time before you move on to something else. And then you got the amateur divisions. Usually, you know, if you're, if you're an okay caller but not that great, you're gonna be competing against okay callers that are not that great, you know? So it's not like a, a, a you know, a Dave Owens or, or Matt Van Sice is gonna be up there competing against you. <laughs> that makes sense so how does how does this translate to turkey calling is is there a a difference between what a judge likes to hear and what a turkey likes to hear for instance if i don't place in the top i don't know five or so uh, that still probably means i'm still going to be able to kill a turkey in the end i I would assume oh yeah yeah without a doubt i mean basically when you're in a contest you're trying to sound realistic for each specific call like the the MC will ask for a plain yelp of a hen and you know you'll you'll do a plain yelps of a hen and you can kind of add your own little uh realism to it you know like pauses and this and that like what you'd actually hear a mm-hmm. hen do but you know you're on a time a time limit and you're only doing specific calls that are asked for so it's not like a real world hunting situation but when you get good with these calls then you know I'm, I can tell you without a doubt, my success rate has gone up over the years because my, the sounds that I'm producing are better. But you can't just produce good sounds and expect to get good results. You, you got to know how to you know, throw those sounds out there to the turkeys and when to, to do particular calls. I know good callers or really great callers that don't seem to do so well in the woods. I mean, they, you know, they kill turkeys. But then I know great callers, you know, that just like Dave Owens just slaughters them out in the woods. I mean, he has great woodsmanship and he knows when to, you know, calling and woodsmanship are often compared against each other. But good calling, and I mean knowing what to call and, and producing good sounds is good work woodsmanship. And so um, th- I guess that's how it translates. I mean, if you can be a good caller and make good sounds and know when to use them, right. your, your success is going to go up. Well, when, when did you kind of put all that together? Like, when did you kind of think, okay, I, I can make these beautiful calls since you're a turkey calling champion? Uh, how, how do you go from you just, you're just making a call to r- recognizing when to use that type of call out in the woods? Well, that happened as just from experience in the woods. And, and I think it improved as I was competition calling because I was watching many more videos of live turkeys or real wild turkeys that I wouldn't have watched otherwise. You know, I'd watch a hunting show and then how often do you see a hunting show where they show examples of the hen cutting and yelping and key keys? Usually you see a gobbler come in and get shot. You know, you hear gobbling. I was was searching out, intentionally searching out YouTube videos um, and audio of hens and fall birds, you know, key key runs, you know, yelping assembly yelping cutting and so because of that and then as i had experience in the woods hunting um I'm, i was seeing these interactions of calls and seeing how the real turkeys were using them and what they how they affected other turkeys around them and you know what they meant so i was putting all these puzzles pieces together i think it um i think when you you get like a, a a great caller and a great woodsman there's someone that's successful in the woods a lot even the guys that you don't see on youtube you know you, you there you, a lot of it you may have a friend like that i guess is what i'm trying to say 
those guys, you know, have devoted a lot of time studying wild turkeys. It's not something you can just read a book and learn. You need to actually see it in action, whether it's on a video or in real life. Real life is better um, as far as individual experiences, but you're not going to get the experiences you can get in, in the volume you can by if you were to look at it on video. So get on YouTube and, and quit watching the turkey hunting videos uh, in your downtime, you know, you know, watch them, <laughs> but spend a lot of time watching just hen talk also. Right. Yeah. We've heard a lot of that, of just studying the basic biology of a turkey <laughs> and what, what they want to do, where, where they're going, why they're going there. And then using that to, as part of the arsenal, whenever you're using your calls, um, to kind of help close the deal on a turkey. I think one of the things that also helped me, I used to raise turkeys when I was younger. I had uh, some domestic bronze turkeys, and then I also had a wild gobbler that someone gave it to me, got hit by a car. And so I'd sit out there at the pen for hours in the mornings <laughs> and the afternoons and just watch them and listen to them. I actually had a person that was driving by, stopped and come out there, and it was an older fellow, and he's like, I just had to stop to see what you're looking at out here. He said, I ride by your house all the time and you're just sitting out here. And I was like, I'm just watching my turkeys, <laughs> you know? So a lot of people don't have that advantage. I, I guess I was, uh, it's a, it's a uh, kind of a positive thing looking back at it that I had turkeys and I, I was interested in listening to them and watching them. I was more interested in just watching that gobbler spitting drums, basically what it was. That's, that's cool. I, I tell, told a similar story a couple episodes back. I had some, they were domestic turkeys, but, they were wild domestic, if that makes sense. You know, they weren't wild turkeys. But they were tame every wild spring, turkeys. I, yeah, tame wild turkeys. There you go. And uh, we every spring you'd go out there and you'd hear them talking to each other. And I think one of the most remarkable things that I realized uh, or noticed then that I didn't put two and two together until here recently is that they have such a variance in their calls. Even even the same bird making the same in the same sequence not all of the yelps sound identical um when you're when you're calling are you are you trying to to make them all sound the same or do you add um inflection periodically on purpose oh i'll i'll depend on where i'm hunting and maybe like the subspecies or or like what the bird is saying back to me i'll you know i'll go up and pitch i may put more front end on it or less front end you know it's it's a lot of of that inflection and I, I'm trying to convey emotions, you know, that, you know, there's a little less rasp and more rasp. And you, like you said, when you see a wild turkey, sometimes when they're in a yelping sequence, it's not just a monotone. Yop, 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 yop. I mean, there's a lot of emotion being portrayed in it. So I, I guess that could also translate to if not all your yelps sound the same, don't like get hung up on it. If there's a, a slight variance in it, just keep going with your sequence and, and uh, maybe not to hold it against yourself or get flustered. Because I know in years past I have, you know, had the perfect sequence going and then had one that didn't sound right and been like, oh, well, there's the hunt kind of thing. Yeah, I think I think that was some of, probably some of the worst advice uh, growing up that I got. And there was a lot of bad advice. Now looking back at what I've learned, and this is just my opinion that it was bad advice. Like one thing was always like uh, don't end on a bad note. You know, I don't. I guess I guess it depends on how you describe a bad note. You know, if you're yelping and that last yelp doesn't come out well, you know, you, it's not a big deal if you, you end it right there. Uh, I got it into my head. I always had to 
to end it with a good yelp. And so if I had a slip, I would yelp two or three more times, and then I'd have a slip on the last one of that. And before you know it, I'm still yelping 10 minutes later. I can't, you know. <laughs> so just 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 end your yelps. One, one thing I do like to do if, if I'm cutting or, or something like that, I always try to end with a few yelps. And I, and I guess that's just a mental thing. I don't want the gobblers, you know, early on when my calling wasn't as good, I, I didn't want the gobblers or hens to think that I was putting when I was cutting. So I was like, Pruck. And I'd end with, you know, three or four little soft yelps at the end just to let them know, okay, yeah, everything's okay. I wasn't putting. But um, I wouldn't worry too much if, as long as you're making fairly decent sounds, you know, um, it's it's okay. But I guess, um, to be honest, if your calling is bad, you know, you're not ending on a bad note. Every note's a bad note. <laughs> so just... <laughs> <laughs> you might be ending it on your on your best note. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't worry too much about it. You no, know, when I was early on, when I was calling, and then everyone kills birds. You don't have to be a great caller. Um, the only thing I'll say is your success rate tends to go up, just from my from what I've seen. But you know, I was that just a all rasp caller early on. It was like, shaw, 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 shaw. I mean, it was just sloppy and rasp. I didn't have a front end. It was it wasn't until like two thousand. 13 that I developed the front end on my calling it, you know it's that's not long ago mm, right well one thing that I kind of figured out it was it was the time me and a, a buddy of mine we went out this piece of public and it was a little bit before the season we were scouting birds it was this big gobbler out in this like wide open pasture he was out strutting and we were just sitting there watching him and then all of a sudden we started hearing these uh basically kind of like a little calling sequence and uh it was i mean there was some putting some yelping some clucks all that going on behind us and we're kind of going it's like man is there somebody out here calling to this bird already it's like the season hasn't even started yet and then a few moments goes by and we're still hearing it and then we look out and out steps this hen uh on this fire lane and i mean she sounded what i thought was horrible i'm like who is who I was, we thought i was like man who's this person out here calling is like they don't sound good at all and then all of a sudden the hen steps out and i'm like well uh, I mean, I get they all sound different a little bit. So uh, I didn't really at that moment, I kind of realized, well, I don't have to get hung up on the calling as much. Um, I still need to kind of focus on that. And I don't I don't think I'm a bad caller. I think I'm probably maybe average or maybe slightly better at calling. But uh, I use that as like kind of like a learning tool to go, OK, not not every hen in the woods sounds like this beautiful, um, seductive uh, type hen. And I, th I think the, the biggest part, a lot of people say that, you know, it's the cadence and this and that. But I think, you know, that is part of it. You know, the, the, if you put the actual sound, you could put it in like in categories of importance. The actual sound of your Yelp or whatever you're doing cutting is not as high on that, on that bar graph. Um, cadence would be a little bit higher than that, you know. And then I think the top thing would be knowing when to talk and when not to talk. I mean, obviously, I, I watch a lot of YouTube hunting videos, and I'll see a gobbler walking in, and all of a sudden the, the hunter starts yelping at it. And I'm like, and then the gobbler stops and looks. And I'm like, why did you call at that point? The gobbler was on his way. You just stopped him to, to make him look. There was no need. Now, if the gobbler had stopped on his own and was peering around, maybe throw a, a few soft yelps. I, so I think what I'm, what I'm basically saying is, when you present those calls is the most important 
Second importance is, um, you know, your cadence and, you know, and, and trying to put that emotion in. And then the actual sound of each call, the individual notes, is probably the least important. Well, uh, when, when do you know when to call? Like when you're out there, I mean, I, that's probably one, of the, probably one of the bigger questions that I hear often is just knowing when to call and what actual sound to make, whether it's a yelp or a cluck or a purring or whatnot. I know a lot of people kind of like to close the deal. If they got a turkey that's committed, they'll, they'll just start purring or they'll just finally go, okay, I'm going to hush for a while and not make any noises. So how, how do you make that decision on the fly? Is that just woodsmanship and experience, or experience out in the woods? Well, it's, it's experience, but sometimes it's just a lot of guessing. And then other times it's just, um, you know, what you, what you feel works best. For instance, I used to, I used to cluck and purr. I call that a finishing call. When I get in, the, you know, the gobbler hangs up out there. At, you know, he's in gun range, but maybe there's something obstructing the, the shot. And you just throw some soft clucks and purrs to get him to move. I've now switched to just some soft yelps. Number one, it's a lot easier for me to do a, a muffled soft yelp than just do a cluck and purr. You know, a cluck and purr is, it's a longer thing where a, a soft yelp is just a, you know, it's real, you can make it, for me, I can make it softer and, and I just, I've switched to that. But the other part is, is what call do I think is the most effective? And I think that's excited cutting, you know, with some yelps mixed in. Um, I was talking to a fellow uh, the other week about this, and um, and I told him, I said, I, yeah, there's that dog. <laughs> I mean, gobblers seem to respond better, in my opinion, from what I've seen to certain calls, like excited cutting, aggressive cutting, and yelping seems to work better on them in most cases. So let's just say they work 75% of the time. And then soft calling like clucks and purrs or soft yelping works the other 25% of the time. Instead of trying to figure out at which point to use one, if you call excited cutting, aggressive calling 100% of the time, then you're going to get it right 75% of the time. And so that's kind of the way I call nowadays. It's basically I just have to decide when to do that, you know, like when to, to call. So, for example, Mississippi, I was uh calling to that bird and i was throwing some cuts and some yelps to him but it wasn't super aggressive but he kept holding his ground and it may have been that i moved forward on him a little bit but but he seemed to still be hung up and then i just laid into the cutting and i at that point i that's the decision was made that i need something to really fire him up and then he came on in and i killed him but then you look at the hunt in wisconsin last year i was with um my buddies Hans and, and CJ, we struck a bird. We set up. I called to him. He didn't gobble. You know, I think I may have called one time. I can't remember. But I decided, I was like, this is a public land bird that's heard stuff. He's doing one or two things. He's either coming in quietly, and that's why he's not gobbling, or he's out of here, you know, um, and or he just has no interest. I said, so our best bet is not to make a single call at all. And that just comes from experience, knowing that, okay, this bird I need to shut up. The other bird I need to, to get really aggressive. And, and so I don't get into, I know this is getting long-winded, but um, I will wrap it up real quick here. I don't get into all the, the um, you know, doing this little call or all these little nuances. It's either aggressive calling or a really low key or no calling. That's the two I kind of pick from and each situation uh, from experience usually dictates what I do. 
Well, I mean, I hear uh, a lot of people, they kind of talk about like gauging the temperature of that gobbler, like how, how hot is that gobbler? Um, do you feel like you have a good gauge on uh, gobblers, whatever they're, uh, whether they're being quiet or they're just firing off at every little noise in the woods? Um, do you find that you can work that to your advantage? Yeah, um, for the most part, I, I think I have a good grasp on reading a gobbler that's you know talking back to me. And, and we're talking about birds we can't see, not a field bird that I can watch his body language, but one in the woods that I can't see. Um, if he's, you know, if he's gobbling just to my calls or as soon as I make start the first note or two, this bird is obviously hot. But then there are other times I may call and he not, and he doesn't respond, but then a crow, you know, sounds off and he gobbles to it. So then I'm thinking, okay, this bird is not necessarily hot. He, he's gobbled to me a couple times, but he's mostly gobbled to a crow. He's probably got hens with him or something. Um, that's usually the case in some, a situation like that. Not always, but that's usually a good indication that he's strutting to hens. He was just shot gobbling to my call. The crow shot gobbled him. You know, so if he's, if he, if you pay attention to when he gobbles, and uh, and the uh, hunt with my nephew back in 2010, for example, it was one of the archive hunts I posted on my channel recently. He was getting ready to call, and a hawk went by and started. A red-tailed hawk or red-shouldered hawk, one of the two, and and it was doing that little high-pitched squealing call they do. And mm -hmm. I was like, I was like, don't call. I said because if you call right now while that hawk's screaming, we won't know what he's gobbling to, whether he was gobbling to your calling or gobbling to the hawk. So you have to pay attention to what's being, what other noises are going on while you're calling. Is he responding to you? And then you know. Then you got birds that maybe gobble every once in a while to your call, but they're not really interested, you know, um, and they're not covering your ground. Usually that's a good indication to got hens too. I mean, there's a, a lot of different scenarios uh, of how they gobble, but you got to pay attention to every single clue out there. The other sounds, when is he gobbling, how often is he gobbling, you know, those so, so, sort of things. And it just comes with experience, I guess. Well, what do you do with a what do you do with a, a hinned up gobbler? Do you just go uh, he's hinned up, and I'm going to come back later, or do you reposition? How do you work a, a hinned up gobbler? Well, you got a you got a couple of possibilities there. Um, if the terrain allows for it, and I can tell which way they're going, I'll I'll try to circle in front of them. That's usually my the least uh, used example. I usually stay off to one side because they're, they're usually moving lateral to me. That's just the way it always seems like when you find one, they're moving left or right. And getting within their bubble w will often work. You know, I, I worked some birds. One time I struck them, I could hear some Jake yelps. Um, some, it sounded like some Jake gobbles. I heard some hens yelping back to me because I was a new arrival. I'd yelped in the woods and they responded. Then they kind of quit responding to me. They weren't interested in this this hen that's you know 150 yards away well I crawled through the woods and I didn't make another sound until I got real close to them because I heard one of the hens yelp or something gave away their location they must have been about 40 yards away so then I started scratching the leaves and clucking and purring and staying really low and I just sat there you know I was real patient that's a that's a big thing a lot of people need to have is patience and when you're moving in on birds or, or crawling through the woods don't try to cover all the ground instantly this, these birds are feeding they're not moving extremely fast if they're moving fast you're not going to catch up to them anyway but i knew that i probably had time so i took it real slow and, and i just kind of clucked and purred and eventually the, the the birds walked 
in front of me at about 30 yards and I was you know through a little gap in the woods I could see the strutters coming and when they came in that open I shot one but you know moving in closer on them works also uh, not only just being able to be there when they pass by basically ambushing them but if you can get within a hundred yards or less of a gobbler's I call it their bubble a lot of times they'll break off and come to you to check out this other hen you know, if you're 200 yards away, they, they just gobble to you. But if you can get to within a, you know, I'd like to be even tighter than 100 yards, you know, 60 or 70 yards, depending on the how thick the woods are, obviously. And and that works often. So, I mean, you got three options there, you know, circle in front of them, crawl on them and kind of ambush them, or just get it, crawl and get closer and get in their bubble and then call them to you. So I wouldn't sit in one spot while they're just gobbling at 200 yards and just sit there all day. I'm going I'm to move if I figure out they're not coming to me. Right. Yeah, I can think of an instant kind of a last season. Uh, I was hunting with my father-in-law, and we were walking down this uh, fire lane, and we heard this bird fire off. We kind of got set up in the woods, and we could tell that he was probably maybe 70, 75 yards uh, away from where we're at, and we kind of sat back in the woods, and we would just call a little bit, and he would gobble to it, um, but it never sounded like he was – we were gaining any ground on him. And uh, and then we could kind of hear hens where he was at. So we're like, oh, man, he's hinned up. And you couldn't see him through the woods because it was kind of thick. So I decided, okay, I'm going to belly crawl uh, back to this fire lane just to see if I can see him uh, through the woods because it would, it would kind of sound like he was coming a little bit. But then the next call, it sounded like it was a little bit further. I don't know if that was just him turning his head or, or what. And my father-in-law would still kind of call behind me. And it was funny because he, he, he made like a little call and all of a sudden this bird fires off like directly behind my father-in-law, probably like five yards from him. And I just kind of peeked my head back and look, well, it was a Jake probably had like a four or five inch beard. <laughs> and, and he was coming into the calling. He came in all quiet. And then all of a sudden, finally, he kind of fires off. And the Jake kind of walks around and I'm just like sitting prone in this fire lane. And he, he steps out in the fire lane. He kind of looks at me, but I was still, and he didn't really do anything. Well, he was kind of going towards where the gobbler and hen was. And he, he crossed past me and went to the woods a little bit. Well, all of a sudden I look back and then here comes the gobbler because I guess he had heard that Jake gobble. He was coming to investigate what was uh, coming in on his territory and then I was able to get like a 25-yard shot on that gobbler just coming back to check a, a Jake out. So, uh, like, it's, it's kind of – what's that? So this was in Florida, correct? Yeah. Yeah, he, yep. that Jake probably thought you were a gator in the in the fire lane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they probably did. That's a good tactic in Florida to use. Crawl like an alligator. They won't run out of gun range. They'll just look at you weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah oh, hey, my I've, gosh, I've, that's I've done, awesome. I've done I've done plenty of crawling. That's that's one of my main tactics, yeah. is to just is to keep getting closer to them. You mentioned the Jake, and that's that's something I'm, I should have mentioned earlier. You know, Jake yelping um, when you're calling to a bird that's hung up, it's got hens. You know, especially if there's multiple gobblers in that group, you might get one to break off. If you can gobble to them and kind of do what you said, it broke that other gobbler, and he came in to check out that Jake. So I mean. That's, I guess, the fourth option is, is to sound like another male turkey has come to that hen, and, and sometimes that works also. So uh, I've got a question for you. We, we've talked about a lot of circumstances, but I, I, where I hunt here on the panhandle, um, 
I'm not going to say that the birds are call shy because I'm not convinced, having talked to a lot of people, that these birds can really think. I think maybe they're conditioned. I don't know. Maybe my, my opinion will change on this. But it seems like these birds on the panhandle right here, almost all season long, are very, very what you would consider call shy. And in that there are several, several uh, hunts that I've gone on where I know there are birds nearby and I can't even get them to, to, to gobble on the roost or hear them gobble on the roost. In in the rare cases, you do get some 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 talking from those birds. Do you find in those situations it's better to, to be uh, soft to gauge their attention at first, or is it uh, is that one of those cases maybe you go in hard to see if it's a bird even worth pers- worth pursuing? I would, I typically call aggressive most of the time. Now I will start off you know on, on the softer side a little bit, some just some yelps and, and maybe some cuts in there. But I'm primarily a, an aggressive caller, you know, most of the time. I, like I mentioned earlier, it seems to work most of the time for me. So if I use it 100% of the time, then I've got that advantage of it working most of the time. Um, you know, um, gosh, I forgot what <laughs> the story you were telling. There's call, a lot. <laughs> call, call shy birds and Florida. Oh, yeah, call shy birds. Yeah, I'm, I'm like you. I don't, I'm not convinced birds are call shy. And... and Here's kind of why I say that. I think most of the times, you know, a gobbler hears you hen yelp, and and the reason they shut up and or go the other way is is because they're worried that there's another male turkey around. I mean, think about this: How often do you see a hen and you call to her and she takes turns around and runs away? You you don't you don't really see that, you know. So right. if 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 the gobblers are call shy, shouldn't some of these hens be call shy too? Because I'm sure they've been next to a gobbler that got his head blown off. Um, so they have every reason. <laughs> Fair. To be, they don't know that we're targeting the males. They just like, oh, there's a person. They're they're out to kill any of us. So I mean, you don't you don't ever see or hear stories of a hen coming in, and and usually they like to come in. You know, you call, they come in. So I think with the male turkeys, it's mostly because they're they've been beat up. Or they've had maybe a bad experience in that location, that particular location. Maybe another gobbler was shot in that spot, and they heard calling from. You know, and like you said, they conditioned. But I don't think if you're making turkey sounds, they're not afraid of other turkey sounds. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't even go near each other. They'd hear another real hen yelp, and they'd run the other way. You know, um, which that's is probably, a really good point. <laughs> and they they probably do that if they think there's another male turkey nearby. So I, I think that's usually the case. It's just subordinates, and they're worried about getting their butt kicked. Um, I was going to say, what about um, like predators and stuff like that? Do you think that makes them call shy as well? I think that's a, a no. I think that's a big reason why they they shut up um, or they don't gobble as much as they used to when I was younger. They used to gobble on the limb nonstop, and they'd hit the ground. They gobble. Now it seems like, you know, they gobble once or twice on the limb, and then they that's it. And I think they've called up too many hunters and too many coyotes and too many other predators that they've learned. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, not evolution, but uh, what do you call it? Sel- selection? Um, natural selection. Yeah, natural selection. The bird that gobbles a lot and then gets killed, the one that doesn't <laughs> gobble a lot breeds a hen and so as babies have that gene in them or the poults have that gene that makes them not gobbles we're we're breeding the gobble out of turkeys is in essence is what just a, a theory that i've thought up uh on occasion i don't know how valid it is but uh it's very possible if you i mean 
I just saw a show the other day. It was talking about mice in, in some part of the world, and there was like lava rocks that were black, and then and yep. there was yep. mice that were white, and there was mice that were black, and the, the black ones survived. And within years, there was nothing but black mice because the white ones kept getting picked off. So, I mean, you know, it's very possible if we're shooting the, all the turkeys that like to gobble, all that's left is to breed is the ones that don't gobble. That that actually kind of seems like a more plausible thing considering we're talking about something with the brain the size of a pea. Uh, its ability to learn and decipher when, a, like you said, you made a great point. The hens don't just take off running, and they would have had similar really bad experiences. So maybe due to high pressure from both predators of human and four-legged uh, type, uh, they're just used. They we, we just we're removing and selecting the birds uh, that are that are um, more call prone. But that begs the question: How do you go after birds that don't talk as much? Is that one of those things where you're gonna uh, maybe give them the benefit of the doubt that they're coming and be a little more patient? Or yeah, I mean you've got to be you you got to put your woodsmanship uh, dial all the way to 10 when you're, when you're hunting those birds, you got to listen for every little thing. You got to listen for drumming and stuff. And, and I, if we back up real quick about the natural selection, I think that we, uh, sure. something we should mention, you know, everyone, when two gobblers come in, you got one, that's kind of nervous and looking, you got one that's strutting and comes in, everyone wants to shoot the strutter. And I don't know why they do that. Maybe because they think it's the dominant bird or it's going to have bigger spurs or whatever. But in most cases, those birds are siblings, and they're probably going to be about the same size. Now, I shot two that were together last year in Wisconsin in the late season, and they were one was much heavier than the other, and the spurs were much bigger. But in most cases, if you get a double, they both have one-inch spurs. They both weigh 18 pounds. They both have 10-inch beards. They're, they're pretty identical. But here's my, th- my thinking on that. That nervous bird is all wiry and stuff. Go ahead and shoot him and get him out of the, get him out of the flock and kill him. <laughs> the one that's strutting and everything you can come back a day or two later and he'll come right into the call and you can kill him too now if you kill that strutter first that one that's nervous now he's really nervous and he ain't gonna gobble for the rest of the season and, and he's gonna be one of those with air quotes call shy birds because as soon as he hears calling he's like i don't want to be around another turkey you know i'm gone and <laughs> so kill, the, kill the nervous non-strutter on your first hunt come back and kill the strutter on your second hunt <laughs> can we start a movement of uh, the, around that like you know shoot shoot the skeptical bird or something like that we need to come up with some phrase and make that go viral shoot, shoot the scared <laughs> yeah the scaredy cat bird or whatever you want to call him yeah shoot <laughs> shoot the smart one <laughs> but where, where were we talking about where i, I took us backwards where you have to remind me where we went to well i, I think at, our point was uh how do you how do you approach uh uh, call shot birds and you were touching on woodsmanship yeah you gotta you gotta be really like um you know listening for drumming listening for scratching these are and and i hate to mention you know other podcasts and i'm not gonna mention the names but i was on another mo- podcast and we were discussing um you know moving through the woods like the way i like to do it is i i like to take it really really slow when i don't let's pretend i don't know there's a bird around which is what you got to do on these birds that don't like to gobble you really don't know where they're at. If they gobbled once, you kind of have a general idea in the direction they're at or the distance away from you. But you've got to become a wild animal out there. You know, you don't see deer just, just you, know, you do sometimes, but for the most part, you know, they'll walk a little bit and they'll stop and look around, they'll browse. And, and turkeys are the same way. They're, 
casually moving through the woods. You've got to be a casual hunter. You know, take a few steps, lean against mm -hmm. that tree, and just listen and observe. I hear more turkey sounds by just stopping and listening every few minutes and, and staying in one spot. And I'll hear a distant gobble, or I may hear drumming. or, or um, I, I can't think of the videos off the top of my head. I'm sure there's a video I have where, you know, we're standing there and all of a sudden we hear drumming or, and uh, you know, we use that to our advantage. But, um, oh, yeah, it was the one with my brother, Troy, in Minnesota last year. But, I mean, in that case, I mean, that's a perfect example, that hunt there. We were walking along real slow and stuff, and I thought I heard some hen talk, and we wasn't sure. We weren't sure, so we, we just sat down and listened. Didn't make a call or anything. I, well, I may have. I can't remember, but we just listened. And then we heard faint drumming. So now we knew there was a, a tom nearby. So I guess without telling the whole story of that hunt, you basically have to become a creature of the woods, move real slow, methodical, and keep your ears and eyes peeled. Yeah. I, I could see that. What do you think about the idea of trying to get close and tight to those birds at dark before the sun gets up? Oh, uh, yeah. If I know where one's roosted, I'm, I'm going to get as tight as I can. I don't want to be up underneath him, but I want to be... Right. I, I'd like to be where I can see the trees roosted, in, in all honesty. Uh, I try to limit to no more than 100 yards away. You know, sometimes I'm a little bit farther away, depending on the terrain or, or the cover or whatnot. But if it's, you know say late season with a lot of leaves i want to be almost in gun range of that tree maybe 50 or 60 yards away um, when it's more open i i like to be able to 100 yards or a little bit farther away but like like you said if i if i know where he's roosted i'm getting in there well before light i'll try not to use any light at all no li any light source at all because turkeys will flush out of the tree if they see a light and then i'll i'll walk like a deer you know especially when i'm getting close to the tree you know i'll, I'll take a few steps stop Maybe maybe even take my hand and kind of um, shuffle the leaves around a little bit like he's sniffing around. Last year, I was grunting like a deer as I walked through the woods, so they, they'd hear that as well because I was getting tight to a roost. <laughs> That's clever. That's clever. I, I've, I've sometimes used a turkey call when I'm deer hunting and I'm walking through an area and I'll pluck and purr, but I've never, never heard anybody say about using a deer call to uh, get in close on turkeys. I, I wish... <laughs> I wish I had video of this hunt. Uh, my buddy Mike Longnecker and I were in South Dakota, and we were trying to get down to where we saw some birds the previous afternoon. We didn't stay there for fly-up, but we knew in the area they were at. So the next morning, we tried to sneak in there to get set up, and the moon was kind of a little bit bright, and as we were going across this little field open, and there were some cows there. It was a walk-in area. Um, anyway, in the skyline, I could see birds up in the tree in the big cottonwood. And I told Mike, I said, get over here. And um, I can't remember if I was the back of the cow or if he was the back of the cow, but we, one of us bent over and joined, you know, put our hands up and, and joined our bodies to look like a big cow. And I was mooing as we went across that clear. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> I wanted them to think that I was one of the cows out there. I didn't want them to think we were two people walking across that clearing because they could see us in the, it was the <laughs> ambient light. So it worked. <laughs> it worked. They didn't flush yeah, out there. That's next level. And you got the bird? Yeah. I, I didn't get him at fly down, but the flock flew down in front of us. Um, he was just out of gun range, but they kind of drifted off into a little a creek bottom. 
I moved over about 30 yards and, and I don't know, it was maybe a half hour later here, he come back out of the bottom looking for hens and he come right back to me and I shot him. <laughs> so you do a lot of, a lot of, uh, across the country trips and I think turkeys might be like the one area where, uh, it might be affordable and the weather is, is favorable to camp and whatnot. I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain. How do, how can someone go about, uh, planning a budget out of state turkey trip? Well, you've come to the right person because I am the most budget conscious person when it goes to out-of-state hunts. And, and you're not going to get a lot of useful information out of me as far as, you know, camping gear and this and that because I don't camp. I sleep in my truck. Um, I don't, I actually don't eat a whole lot when I'm hunting. I, I don't know why. I just don't, I'm not very hungry. But like if I go to South Dakota, I spend $100 on the tag. It's a seven-hour drive. You know, so my $100 on my tag and then my fuel there and back. And then while I'm there, I usually factor in a few hundred miles of driving while I'm there. Um, I may grab a burger. I may eat once a day. I know that's that's pitiful, but I just don't get hungry when I'm turkey hunting. I'm so focused on I may If I come out of the woods, I'll go to a local convenience store and get a, some burger and fries or something. And then um, and that's about it. I sleep in my truck, so I save money if I can. I sleep on <laughs> any, if you, know, you pull on an abandoned dirt road in the middle of South Dakota, no one's going to bother you. You're not even going to see a car all night. So you just, I just, <laughs> right. that's it. I carry a cooler with me with some drinks and stuff and that's my, my budget hunting. So, I mean, I, uh, Tennessee, I splurged last year. I got a, a, a cheap motel and that's because I talked to a local, I can't remember if it was a police officer or a warden, but where I was hunting, they had some break-ins in vehicles and I had uh -oh. all my camera equipment, computer equipment, stuff like that. So I got a cheap motel to, to store my computer stuff and all my valuables in. Um, but usually when I'm off traveling somewhere, um, you know, I, I just pull over somewhere and sleep in my truck. Let's, let's talk budget wise. If someone's willing to do that and they're willing to drive, let's say, I don't know, uh, 10 hours or so in a radius to, to hunt birds. What's a, what's a, a, a non-resident tag? Is it, is it as expensive, I guess, as, as deer are, uh, you know, Iowa's like a, a $2,000 non-resident tag for, for deer and, it takes a thousand dollars a year for four years to get the tag, and I'm just curious: is it one of those things where you could do it for six hundred bucks? Yeah, it, I'd say the average cost is between one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty dollars, depending on where you go. Um, I know That's cheap. Two, yeah, um, no, Wisconsin is cheap. Wisconsin is for a non-resident. Uh, if you're if it's your first time here, it's thirty dollars. For your license and then and then and then fifteen dollars per tag and you can get as many tags as you want as long uh, you know of leftover tags until they sell out so that's why dave owens came up here and killed like 10 birds because you know i've done that i've had 10 <laughs> tags in wisconsin so that's wow. that is the cheapest Wait, state hold on that is the cheapest state by far oh hold on a second you the how many birds did you shoot in one hunt Oh, you can shoot as many as you got tags for. There's, I mean, you, you, when they go and sell the leftover tags, you can buy one a day until they run out. And they don't usually run out in certain zones, like zone one. They don't run out. Oh, my God. So I did the math one day. I was like, okay, if you, if you, if you apply for the lottery, you don't even have to buy that first tag. It's free with your half-price hunting license, if you draw, that is. <laughs> And then if you buy one tag a day, once they go on sale until the end of the season, you could buy 67 turkey tags. And if you bought them all for the last day of the season, you could shoot 67 turkeys on the last day of the season. I mean, 
<laughs> I highly doubt that's going to happen, but I'm just throwing, there's, you really have no limit here per se. Oh wow. man, that is nuts. Yeah. Chase, we're going to have to go to Wisconsin, man. They, I think Wisconsin <laughs> has more turkeys than any other state in the, in the nation. And, and I, I, I don't look at, you know, these DNR estimates, like Minnesota says their estimated turkey population is like 35,000. Wisconsin says there's estimated 350,000. I don't think it's 10 times as much over there. I mean, there's there's a lot of turkeys in Minnesota also. But I think Minnesota uh, estimates really low. But I think there's more turkeys in Wisconsin than there is in Alabama. And Alabama says they have, what, like a million birds or 900,000 or something ridiculous yeah. like that? I think Wisconsin has more yeah. than that. I th- and Wisconsin's in its heyday or prime of turkey hunting right now. You know how states, their population just goes up, up, and up, and then it you know, finally peaks? Wisconsin, I think, is in that peak right now. These are the good days right now. So if you can get up here and hunt Wisconsin, it's the time to do it. Yeah, oh, sounds like it. man. Are you going to be offended if I cut that part of this podcast out? <laughs> not at all but <laughs> I'm just i mean teasing. i'm, I'm, I'm not worried teasing. about it. I, wisconsin has so many turkeys and so much public land available that you, you're not going to have much hunting pressure i, I rarely see another right. hunter when i'm hunting oh my god wow they must just all be interested in the deer yeah and you, you can knock on the doors to and you get permission fairly easy in wisconsin for turkey now you mentioned deer Forget about it. You knock on the door up here, they're liable to, <laughs> they're liable to hit you. <laughs> Dude, Chase, we're going to have to make this happen. We're going to have to go up there and, and sweet talk Shane into showing us the ropes up there. And Man, that's that's absurdly cheap, man. And I'd like to see uh, I'd like to see Wisconsin. Maybe we could get Adam Miller and a couple people to all do, do a turkey camp. Yeah, you should. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, and the, 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 I think the the well the whole state's beautiful with you know rolling hills and and farm country sure. and stuff and then, but like the along the rivers Wisconsin River and the Mississippi River where you have all the the bluff country they call it, um, mm-hmm. it's you know timber and, and really steep terrain or hilly terrain, but it's loaded with birds. Um, the terrain is actually beneficial for moving around on birds and stuff. Um, so. That's where I like. That's part of the state I like. I mean, there's turkeys all over Wisconsin. You can't ride down the road without seeing them in fields and stuff everywhere. It's good to know. Now, when you're going on these hunts, are you are, are like some states I know offer like three day, uh, what is it? Three day licenses, ten day licenses. Or, or is that part of your budget process? You're just you know how long you're going to be there, so you just kind of make a decision. Okay, I'm just going to buy that uh, hunting license for that state. Yeah, that's, that's what I always look at. Okay. These, this is how many days I'm going to be there. Do they offer a tag that's, you know, say I'm going to be seven days somewhere and they got a 10 day license. Obviously I'm going to have to get the 10 day license. But, um, sometimes depending on how easy it is to get a tag, like if you can just walk into a store and and buy one, a a convenience store or Walmart, and they have a three day, day tag available, I may get that. And then if I don't, killing thing in the next three days then i'll maybe get another three day so it ends up costing me more money if i had to buy a second one like that but i save a lot of money if i kill uh, a bird or two the first three days um <clears throat> so I, I i do factor some of that in like for instance i'm going to mississippi this year and in florida if i tag out early in florida you know i have 
plans to, to hit Alabama, you know, so I'm always looking at, okay, this is how much time I'm devoting somewhere. Um, what are the tags calls? What, how many day tags, you know, should I buy or how many days of a license should I buy? You know what I'm saying? But, uh, and then if I tag out, then what, what's next, you know, on my way home or whatever. And what is the cost of that license? And, and sometimes I do have to, you know, turn them down license because it may be too expensive. Like South Carolina would be out of the question. They, because of the season structure, they changed in that state and they jacked the prices up for non-residents, which kind of pisses me off, but that's another story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how many many trips a a year do you you plan for turkey season? I I usually try to plan one long trip. And, uh, and then that's what my the most expensive trip obviously is. And then I, and then I do these little short excursions from my home base here in Minnesota. So I'll go South Dakota for three or four days. And then I come back and work for, you know, I'm, I work three twelves, So that's my work week. And then I'm off for four. So those four days and I'm Dead off, gum. Yeah, I'll, I'll shoot over to South Dakota. You know, I may leave after work on Sunday night and drive through the night to get there to hunt that first morning on Monday morning. And then I may go to Nebraska on the next one. And then Iowa's just down south of me. And, and those are expensive for one bird. It's $272 for one turkey. But I, I, I said I wasn't going to get another one there, but I ended up, because I enjoyed it so much last year, and the terrain is very similar to where I hunt in Minnesota, and I like there. Minnesota's one bird, and I'm like, you know, what the heck. <laughs> no, you, 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 only, you only live once. so Yeah. Iowa seems like they're proud of all their animals. <laughs> yeah, they're proud. They're proud of everything. I'd, I'd hate to buy it, stop at a stand, uh, what a roadside stand on the side of the street for uh, produce. I, I hate to see what the produce costs. <laughs> <laughs> their, their corn is probably $10 a ear. <laughs> but back to your, to your question about you know, my trips. Like this year, I'm doing two long trips. Uh, and I say long, that's when I've got to go, you know, a thousand miles or more, whatever it is, or, or like 800 miles or more. And a lot of that depends on when the state sees. See, I had to look at all this when, when the seasons come in for each state. You know, I put a list of states I want to hunt this year, 20 of them. You know, I've got that list of 20. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to hunt all 20. And I have a little slider there with when the season starts and when it ends in each one. And then I look at the middle where they all overlap. I'm not worried about being there for opening day or, or, or the, you know, whenever. I just want to be there when the season's open and how it corresponds with my travel routes. Well, I'm going to Tennessee and Virginia, and that doesn't really correspond with, you know, I'm, they're not going to be open together when I go to Mississippi and Florida. So, obviously, I have to go make a return trip down there. So, I'm making two long trips this year, and, and, uh, and that's why, because the seasons just don't coincide uh, well for my schedule. See, I need right. that I need that schedule life like you and Chase. Chase uh, – has has the benefit of being able to get after animals uh, a couple extra days a week. I need to get on that uh, either four tens or three twelves. I I think I'd be pushing my luck with three twelves as an accountant. But three twelves, <laughs> I bet you three twelves are rough. I'll tell you, and, and um, especially when you're getting close to turkey season. Like when I, I this is my last weekend to to work before I kick off turkey season, and I'm eating up a lot of vacation uh, to take these trips. So there'll be like a two week, three week period that I don't work at all, but like this weekend, I'll have 12-hour shifts, and those are going to be the longest day ever. You know, in the middle, back in, 
back in the middle of winter when you know long ways away from turkey season it wasn't a big deal that you know it's just a normal day but now i'm like oh man i can't wait till i get off one more day and and get off from there and then i'm on the road headed south and that's going to seem like a 24 hour day is what it's going to seem like <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome though man that's uh that's the schedule chase chase works 24 and then he's off for three weeks and I, i'm trying to, <laughs> I, know, I know i'm not gonna catch him but <laughs> i need that schedule <laughs> it didn't it didn't quite like that but. it's not it feels like it though when you're it's, at work and you're getting photos from him every day it's yeah. like god almighty <laughs> work it's work a good schedule for sure work 24 get paid for 224 <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it <laughs> there you go there you go oh man well, Chase, I, I think I've I've run through all my notes on my side. Do you have anything that we didn't touch on that uh, you wanted to wanted to? Uh, no, I think we covered a, a little bit of everything kind of uh, in this podcast. So, uh, thanks to Shane for taking out time and uh, coming on the the podcast to kind of give the the listeners a little bit of the knowledge that he has. Yeah, yeah. What? Why don't we go ahead and run through the listener questions that we've got then, um, since we've hit the main topics, and let's pick his brain. So one of the we, we put a, a Facebook post up there, and uh, every so often we we collect some some questions. We boiled it down to uh, five here, uh, and the first one is, what is the the ideal early spring calling scenario? I think what this person's saying is uh, ideal situation, early season. Uh, you you're, you can kind of like paint the picture. Oh, my ideal. <laughs> you don't want to hear my ideal. I can I can actually tell you the story of that. And I was in hunting in South Carolina many years ago, and I walked to the edge of a swamp bottom, and I was sitting there, and it was getting light, and I made a series of yelp, and I just happened to be looking in the right direction. I saw the gobbler pitch down, hit the ground, and run straight to me. I never had a chance to sit down against a tree. I shot him while he was running to me. It took about. <laughs> That's an ideal situation. Yeah. Can I, yeah. can you send one of those my way this year? <laughs> I, I, haven't had, I haven't had one of those since. I've had some quick ones, but nothing that quick. I mean, that was it was over before it was over. Um, my ideal situation, I guess, is number one to to know where a bird is roosted, to go in there, to be able to go in it. Because I mean, that puts you. I say in the driver's seat all the time. This is it does put you in the driver's seat. You have. And it's to me that's the most exciting part of it because like last year in in, in Minnesota with the um, Peter Denakis I hunted with, we roosted that bird and we went back and looked at the maps and the topos and I had a good idea where he was roosted and I set the, I mean it was so exciting to strategize looking at those maps that that really um, I guess I don't know gets me excited <laughs> for lack of a better term I've said it enough. <laughs> But just the strategizing, the chess match, you know, where do we need to, to go? Where do we need to set up? What's he probably going to do? Where is he probably going to go? You know, that's my ideal situation. But then, um, you know, calling to him the next morning, I know a lot of people say they don't like to call to a bird on the roost. They like for them to do their thing and fly down them to call. I, I just think that's, you know, um, I don't know. I don't want to be too harsh, but I think that's silly. Number one, how's he going to know where you're at before he flies down? You know, if you don't make a sound, even if it's just bubble clucks or something, little little pips or something, just to let them know there's a turkey over here, not that way. Um, especially if you right. can see him, you want him to turn around on a limb and face you. But if I can't see him and I know he's over there, I'm gonna let him know that there's a turkey over here. And uh, and most of the times they they at least fly down 
laterally with you, parallel to or perpendicular to you or, or towards you. Um, so that's the ideal situation. And I will get aggressive to them on the roost. Um, but my ideal situation um, is knowing where they're roosted. They're on the limb the next morning. They're by themselves. Um, I'm gonna probably you know start off somewhat soft or, or non-aggressive in my calling. But as soon as his feet hit the ground, I may just ramp it up. Uh, I'm, a, I'm like I said earlier, I'm an aggressive caller. That's my style these days. Uh, may not been so much in the past, but these days I seem to have a lot of success with it. And um, even if the gobbler's probably telling me something else if, uh, that I don't hear, or you know, I, <laughs> I'm blinded to it. I, I'm usually aggressive calling. You know, some cutting. Cutting is one of my favorite things, but I always like to throw a few yelps in there at the end. That, like I said. I hope that answered his question or her question. Or yeah, I think that's I think that's what I think that's what she was getting at, for sure. Yeah. All right. Second question. This must have come from one of our Florida listeners. Uh, what's a, a good decoy setup for thick swamps? Thick swamps. If if the woods are thick, I'm not even going to use a decoy in most cases. Um, I'll, I'll just give you kind of my general setup and and let the the listener or the person ask the question decide when they want to use the decoy um my setup these days is a lone jake i won't carry a hen anymore number one that you know that's extra stuff to carry number two is when i'm set up in the woods calling my hen calling is a hen decoy the turkey the gobbler just can't see the hen he knows there's one around he just can't see it but what he can see is that jake decoy and mm -hmm. i usually i like a non-aggressive jake you know maybe like a quarter strut or something just a little bit head tuck but i want his head up high enough so he can see it from any direction if he comes in you know swings around comes in behind it i don't want it like a strutter where you, the head's blocked or, uh, or a three-quarter strut where the head's blocked i want him because in my opinion gobblers trigger on that red color i used that like i said i raised turkeys whenever i wore a red shirt outside to feed him he tried to attack me if i had red on or a red hat you could set that red really? hat on the ground and he would eat it up so I, I, I tried to avoid wearing red around him. But anyway, so that's why I, I like my decoys head to be seen. I even take paint and, and even kind of embellish the red even more to make it even look hotter red. I bought some acrylic paints to make it more red. And then I had that white cap really glowing. So a, a non-aggressive Jake pose, quarter strut, head up high enough where the gobbler can see it from all different directions. I don't even worry about the beard. I chop the beard off with scissors because it's just a new uh, annoyance for me. Um, I don't think the gobblers worry about it, whether it's a Jake or a long beard. I don't think they can tell what's an adult or a mature bird by its beard length. Um, right. So I usually put just a lone Jake out there and that, that works well. And I, and I don't put it directly in line with the gobbler where I think he's going to come from. I, I mean, if he's coming from my left, I want the decoy off to my right farther. That way, if he does kind of hang up, he's still in gun range off to my left, you know? I guess that's the, I had, I used to have a video up on YouTube, but it was, um, it was on the Mossberg channel, but it was re removed when, you know, when we're, they're not my sponsor anymore. So my, my content's not over there anymore, but I'm going to create right. a new video one day and then I can just refer people to how I like to set up my decoys. It's usually just a long Jake. That's interesting. When you say a long Jake, you mean something like. Lone Jake. No, alone. Oh, lone. Sorry. I thought you said long. My bad. Yeah, my, my southern, my southern <laughs> speak is not as well as good as you guys 
Okay, so the next question. Do turkey calling skills translate to other forms of hunting? Hmm. Now, I think I think what this person may, if I'm not mistaken, this might be one of our, our Polish listeners, um, if I'm not mistaken. So I know he's, he's, ta- he's consuming a lot of different hunting uh, that we do here in the States. So I'd be interested to, to see what you think from that perspective. So I've done... Ask the question one more time so I can make sure I... Do, do turkey calling skills, I think you said skills or tactics, translate to other forms of hunting? Oh, oh yeah, I guess uh, I guess I understand what he's saying now. And, and I would, if I'm interpreting it correctly, yes, it does. I mean, like, if you're a great turkey hunter and you learn and you become good in, as, as far as woodsmanship and that sort of thing, you typically are good you know if you translate that to deer hunting you you, you i mean obviously you got to learn the animal you're after you know and then but your woodsmanship still should be able to easily translate into it with not without much time devoted if, if, if you know what i'm saying um sure most most people that are great deer hunters um can hunt other game really well and then likewise for people that are usually great turkey hunters can be great other hunters uh, uh, for other game uh, so I think it translates, and it's easy to swap back and forth. If I wanted to, to get, uh, let's see, if I wanted to be dedicated into waterfowl hunting, um, I don't know how much woodsmanship is involved in that. I mean, you guys can tell me. I guess you got to pick the the right location and and all that stuff. But I guess if somebody's good at one thing, it's not hard for them to be good at something else. Would be my answer for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, stum- I think, I'm stumbling you know, a lot on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I so I'm I'm studying elk hunting because I, I make a tr- an annual trip now out to see my uncle in Colorado, and one of it's fascinating. He asked this question, and I didn't make the connection until I, I I typed it down. But I think one of the ways that it does translate is the purpose in which you call. Like you don't just blindly call when you're talking. You're trying to communicate to that animal a certain fashion. And with elk hunting, you're doing the same thing with your calls. But what's really fascinating is to hear that, you know, a turkey killer like yourself, you favor that aggressive form of calling. And there's a very uh, popular show called Born and Raised, and they travel all over chasing elk, and they favor an aggressive form of calling. And and it's just, it's it's very interesting to see that overlap between those two. I, I don't have a whole lot of experience that I'm going in year two of, of pretending to be an elk hunter, but... You know, I, I do see how maybe being deliberate with your calling would translate to turkeys, deer, duck, elk. I mean, just calling for the sake of calling, while it might yield some ex- some success, being intentional with what you do and why, uh, probably translates pretty well too, don't you think? Yeah, and, and I don't think it's just the aggressive calling. I think it's the aggressive tactics in general. I mean, you watch um, Whitetail Adrenaline. Fair. You ever heard of them? Yep, yep. Okay, oh, yeah. the hunting public. You know, um, look at Dave Owens and Penhody Project. Those are three good examples that all three of them are successful and consistently successful in the deer woods and turkey woods, uh, well, except for the white-tailed adrenaline guys. I don't even think they turkey hunt, but um, they're consistently uh, successful. And what's the one thing they all possess, and that's uh, or they one thing they do is it's an aggressive style of hunting, and and I think that in itself is well you know it's a, it's a great uh tactic to use be aggressive i've i've become more of aggressive not only a caller 
but I'm more aggressive in my decisions on moving on a bird where I used to be more low key and reserved and, and practice patience. I'm using air quotes again, patience. I'd sit in one location for a long time. Now, if something's not happening, I'm on the move. I'm making something happen or trying to. All right, Shane, you got 10 different calls that are average quality or three quality calls. What are you going with? Well, are we talking about mouth calls or any call? I guess, I guess they're just assuming, do you, how many calls do you go out in the woods with when you're, when you're hunting turkeys? I carry a one pot call and uh, usually two strikers. Sometimes I only have one with me, but I usually carry at least two just for different sounds. I have an owl hooter. Uh, I sometimes carry my crow call with me, I guess most of the time. And then I have a couple mouth calls with me. So that's about it. Most of my vest is filled up with camera equipment stuff like extra batteries and sd cards and stuff <laughs> if if i didn't what if, if i didn't record my hunt i wouldn't even carry a vest at all i would probably just carry a i don't know a, a plastic bag in my pocket if the ground is wet and sit on or not even that sometimes i don't if it's not cold i don't mind my butt getting wet um i would just carry an owl hooter and a mouth call and a shotgun what pot call do you take by chance so last year I was using, uh, this Hooks makes these, um, oh, Steve Morgenstern, he's a champion friction caller and he makes these for Hooks, but he, last year I was running the, um, the Boss Slate. Before, well, actually before that I was running the Exterminator, which is a glass call with, a, I think a zebra wood pot call, glass surface. And then last year I was using his Boss, boss Slate, and I just like a slate call, but it's hard to get a good one. Well, he came out with a phenomenal one. Well, then this year he came out with this Banshee, I can't even say it right, Banshee Slate. It's, mm -hmm. It sounds to me almost identical. I mean, it's a great sound call, but it's about, it's much smaller in diameter. And that's, um, you know, I'm always, I'm about size and compactness and stuff. And this, you know, I love, plus my daughter, if she's hunting with me, I'll have this call with me and it fits her hands really well. So this year I'm using this Banshee Slate with a, I bought a tulip uh, striker that our buddy Neil Herman with Hooks makes. Um, but apparently my daughter has claimed it as hers, and she says I can't take it with me. But, man, it runs a pot call well. So we're having, we're having a little family fight about this, this striker right now. <laughs> she's afraid I'm I think that's life goals right there. Yeah, she, she's afraid I'm going to leave it in the woods. This question is, can you call a turkey across water? And if yes... How would you approach trying to do so? Well, we did that in Wisconsin, uh, 2016. I got video of it. Um, we called it across a river and I was, I was fully prepared for it not to want to fly across that river. I didn't really have a strategy except for, uh, my buddy Joe Slayton was with us and I said, let's just go sit over here next to the riverbank. I was actually, I did have a little bit of strategy. I was hoping to see a sandbar or something that we could call them down to the sandbar. And it was like, I forget how far across there. It was like 70 or 80 yards or something across the river there. Um, it, was, it was actually a bigger river, but this was like a little island. And the, the gap between the water that ran, made the island was about 70, 80 yards wide. But anyway, we just kind of sat down and was just going to listen to see what this bird would do. We The bird ended up being hot and, you know, with, I knew those birds in that area flew across that river often from the bluff, the bluffs on one side to the swamp bottoms on the other. So it wasn't out of the realm of possibilities he'd fly across. 
and and he was hot, and that's what he did. And I just got lucky, and I caught a little bit on video. You can see this. You can see his head be bopping across the sandbar, and then he pitches across, and he landed like ten yards from us on the bank. You can hear his wing beats as he landed. The problem was we were in, <laughs> we were in a swamp bottom in late season. There was ferns growing, and they were about over knee high. And I was I was up on my knees behind Joe Slayton. And I saw the gobbler's head just barely above the ferns. And I was like, Joe, the, Joe was sitting on his butt, and so Joe couldn't even see over the ferns. And I'm like, Joe, he's right here to our left. But anyway, he, the bird went on, slipped on around us. Um, uh, we ended up repositioning later and killing the bird. But um, I don't know. I don't really have a whole lot of experience calling birds across the river, I've, uh, water. Uh, I know in Florida, they, they don't mind going through water. They walk right through it. That one would dug up like the gobbler walked right through the water to us i mean it was pretty shallow but if you're in an area that birds frequently fly back and forth across the water it shouldn't be an issue for the most part if as long as the bird's hot and by itself yeah i i think i had a, a case where maybe the bird wasn't completely by itself but i i had a bird on the other side of, of a river i mean a tiny little river maybe i don't know 40 year 40 yards wide or so maybe not even probably closer to like 20 25 and and he was fired up. I mean, he would – you could dang near burp and he would have gobbled at you twice. But he just would not come across that thing. And we tried everything we could from from uh, imitating another gobbler as we kind of walked away trying to get his attention. Um, but he would come right down to that bank and drum and gobble. And, and I mean, just, it was amazing. But he just would not cross. So – and that was the one time I really felt like I was I, I had a, a fired up Florida gobbler, but you know, of course guess, he was on private. I guess looking back at it, I mean, I, there's so many hunts in in my life that it's easy to forget some, and and I just remembered one from South Carolina many years ago. Um, and I guess depending on the width of the water, it takes what I do. Like that that big river in Wisconsin, we set you know not far from the riverbank. But back in South Carolina many years ago, I was running and gunning. You know, I was walking and calling. I don't run and gun. I walk and call. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I finally struck one, and he was on the other side of a river, and it was about 20, 25 yards wide. Um, and instead of sitting on the river bank, I probably could have and just shot him across the river. Um, I actually stayed back about 30 yards from the river. I was actually at the river bank when I got him to gobble. He was on across and up in the woods. I backed up about 30 yards from the river, but I could still see the river bank from where I was at. And I, he he didn't take any time, you know, to get to that river bank, but he just walked back and forth over there. And I just finally shut up. You know, I I gave him a few soft yelps, let him know I was there, but I basically shut up and just watched him. And he walked back and forth. He'd gobble. Eventually. He walked down to the sandbar uh, and then flew across and landed on the bank edge ledge in, in, on my side. And then he walked through this swamp bottom, this tall vegetation, and then hopped up on a log, and I shot him. So I guess um, it depends on the size of the river. Um, if it's a, a narrow one, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, you, you may be better off just sitting on the bank of that river and shooting him across if you can get across to retrieve him. Or, you know, back up away from the river so that he does fly across. But use silence. You know, once you get his interest and you know he's coming, then just shut up. Because then he may just strut right. on the other side and he stays there forever. But it, like in the case of the Wisconsin Wide River, we, we actually got right on the riverbank. But we weren't expecting him calling across. We just got lucky. Gotcha. 
Good deal. Well, that's all the questions we've got. Shane, do you have anything you want to say to kind of close this out? Any 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 sage wisdom you want to drop to to finish this? Or uh, I don't know. I I don't have much wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't buy that for a minute. <laughs> I'm just ready. I'm just ready to go turkey hunting, dadgummit. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Enough, enough, there you go. Enough talking. I'll, I'll rub about it in. We're sitting 17 days away. Yeah. I may. I You'll may be down into, here, so. I may run into you guys in Florida. What part of Florida? Uh, I guess you don't want to say this on the air where you're going to be hunting, though. But well, hang hang on a second. I'll close out the episode, and then we can chat about it. How about that? <laughs> All right, folks, y'all don't, <laughs> don't get to hear that part. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, guys, if you've enjoyed this, do us one solid favor. Go follow Shane on, on YouTube. Go check out his website, Calling All Turkeys. But most importantly, no matter what you do, get outside and enjoy the great outdoors.